This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our guest today is Dana Perino, and she is the former White House press secretary for George Bush, and she now serves as the co-host of the Fox News TV show, The Five. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Welcome, and thanks for coming to I'm speak with us. I'm honored to be us. here. Thank you. Um, you are a frequent speaker on political trends, obviously, mm -hmm. and you're active in global maternal health and child development mm -hmm. and a couple of other charities. I just wanted to mention that. Mm -hmm. One I thought was interesting was the American Veterans uh, Companions for Heroes, yeah. which is uh, matching rescue animals with vets suffering from uh, PTSD. So that's an interesting one. Yeah, that actually came through, um, as with a lot of charities that people end up working for, there's some sort of a personal connection or a reason, something that grabbed your heart. And the maternal health and global um, childhood development work was really something I learned from George W. Bush and Laura Bush and with their efforts in Africa. And I got to travel with them there. And so that stuck with me. And then after I left the White House, I met well, I'm a big dog person anyway, always have been. And then I met a young man who um, had served in our armed forces uh, in the, on the intel side, though, and he had been deployed right after 9-11 and had a pretty um, traumatic experience happen to him where he wasn't injured but psychologically was put into a lot of fear. And so he suffered from post-traumatic stress. And when he came back to America, he uh, was fairly unpredictable in his moods. This is, a, this is one of the symptoms. And his friends got to the point where they didn't want to be with him at the bars. They thought he was almost to the point of violent. Uh, and one of them suggested you should get a rescue dog. And he said, that's ridiculous. Why? I don't need a dog. But they took him anyway. And he got a little dog named Cheyenne. And I watched this young man's life absolutely be transformed. And then he subsequently started Companions for Heroes. So they match up rescue dogs with people that have post-traumatic stress, not just from the wars, but also, um, and something new to me, I didn't realize that firemen also uh, go through things, uh, those similar feelings after traumatic experiences that they witness. So they help everybody, and I think it's a really good way to bring those two forces together. What a great group. Yeah. Uh, getting to your book now. Yes. Uh, so it's a personal account. I think it's a personal account of your life and your private life a little bit, your mm -hmm. professional life, mm -hmm. and it's also a kind of advice and lessons learned kind yeah. of a book. Uh, what are some of the key themes? Well, I never thought I would write a memoir at age 40 when it came out or when I was writing it, um, but I did have this unique place in history. I was the first Republican woman to be a White House press secretary. I served during those turbulent years uh, with George W. Bush. I was in the White House, well, in the administration for over seven years. So I saw a lot. A lot of it was behind the scenes. And there were two things that I wanted to do with this book. First was to try to close, fill in a gap that I thought existed in the coverage of the Bush presidency, because there were many historians or columnists, journalists that had rehashed the policies and the politics of the administration. But there was no one really that had tapped into the personal. What was he like behind the scenes you know, when the cameras weren't on? And I got to witness so much of that. And there were very few people who could have written those stories. So what I tried to do was to peel back the curtain of what it was like to be there um, and tell just real firsthand accounts. The other thing I did is because I'd had these great opportunities as a young woman, I would be asked all the time, how did you get to be White House press secretary? And young people 
really want you to give them a roadmap and they will follow it to the T. If you tell them these are the eight steps you have to take to be successful, they will do all eight very earnestly. But well, it's in kind life, of hard for you, right? Because <laughs> a lot of the opportunities came very unexpectedly. Yes, almost all of them. And, and I, I, I call the book, and the good news is partly because I'm a planner and a firstborn daughter. So I always wanted to have everything planned out, and I worry a lot. And the truth is, I, if, if I look back, all the good things that happened in my life happened at times that I wasn't expecting it and that I didn't have it planned. So that's a hard plan to say, don't worry about it. Yeah. Things will come to you. But I'm, I'm sure you're not saying that. It, you need to be prepared. You need to recognize the opportunities. Yeah. But why don't you talk a little bit about so, that? So um, in Chapter 5 uh, of the book, I spend... I break out all of the best advice I have into three basic categories, things you can do at the school or the office today to make your likelihood of success more um, more promising. The second thing is over a career, and the third thing is over a lifetime. Um, one of the things I do always ask young women and men, too, I try to strip out the gender-specific advice from this book, but I, I've noticed that mostly it's young women. It is. That, I think, uh, I they're think appealed so, yeah. to it. Um, and it's that don't don't worry your young life away. You're going to work for the rest of your life. Um, millennials are a very interesting generation for a lot of reasons. They're deal. I think they're absolutely adorable, but they have some some significant challenges. And their life and their careers are kind of delayed by about ten years, partly because of the recession, also because of technology, and also just because of the way that they approach things. So, um, I talk a lot about voice. I would say that's my most important piece of advice in the book about finding your strong voice. Yes. You've probably heard it around campus or in your own life if you have daughters or nieces. This tendency to speak at the end of the sentence. Val- Valley up. Girl speak. Kind of like Valley Girl, but yes, it's, um, it's called up-talking now. Mm-hmm. And it's a popular thing to do because if your friends are talking like that, you sound like that. I think there's another reason that they do it. It's because if you are giving your opinion in the form of a question. You don't have to take ownership of it. You're just raising questions. And I am convinced that a lot of young people, and this includes men who are starting to talk like this as well, that you are uh, limited in your advancement in your career. You are not put forward for promotion. You are not taken on the trip to meet the client because your boss doesn't feel like you're mature enough to be able to do that. And it is an easy fix for young people. It really is. You can break them out of the habit in a day. Well, it was interesting because you had a lot of uh, broad stroke ideas, but then you had some very specific things like mm-hmm. that, like don't wear Ugg boots, I think, to the office. Yeah. <laughs> but, but another one was uh, take, take the blame for your team. Absolutely. Tell me about that one. Well, I give one of the examples about um, you know, everybody, at some point, you're going to have to be willing to take a punch for your team. Um, and if your employees or your teammates will see that you're willing to do that, they're more likely to be loyal to you, and your team is more likely to function better. Uh, one example is from uh, in 2000, when George W. Bush was running for president. He's in the primary process. He gets to New Hampshire, won Iowa easily. Gets to New Hampshire, and his team, they were pretty confident, and he lost big time to John McCain, and it was embarrassing. And it meant that they had to have a scramble to South Carolina to try to win South Carolina. And instead of being mad, um, George Bush gathered his whole team around, looked everybody in the eye, and he said, this was my fault. No one here should feel like they have to take the blame. And what he said that he wanted to do in that moment is to say, I understand that I've got a role to play in this problem. 
But if I take all the responsibility, that means that you all won't have to have any sort of sniping against each other as we try to go forward and win the next contest. And it worked, and it ultimately ended up being successful. Well, now that you've brought up the primaries, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, your sixth chapter. is called mm -hmm. Civility, Lost and Found. And, of course, the book was written before the current primary yeah. season. Um, and um, if anything, there's even less civility. In fact, is there any civility, I might ask you. But what do you think about what you see in this Republican primary? Because I think the Democratic primary this time around is, is not anything to compare to that. Not yet. Yeah. Um, and it probably won't be. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think there's no doubt that um, there is civil incivility has existed in politics for a long time. Um, I used to get criticized when I was press secretary for not being tough enough against the media that was harsh on President Bush. But I also was following his lead and also being true to myself. It's one of the reasons I could never run for office. Like if it's gonna, if running for office means that you have to treat people the way that these candidates have been treating each other, then I'll never run uh, and be successful. I don't have a desire to run anyway, but one of the things I conclude in my book was that having worked in politics and then now in cable news, that I don't have to own anybody's comments but my own. So every time I open my mouth, I have a choice to make. And believe me, I can be snarky and sarcastic. I can deliver a line that is like the atomic elbow but I don't do it in public for a reason because, one, I couldn't live with myself if I did. I tell one story in the book about how in the White House press briefing room one time, there was a reporter from the New York Times, and she wasn't paying attention to the rest of the briefing. And the questions she asked had already been asked and answered several times. And I was irritable because I hardly ate anything during the whole White House. And I was frustrated, and I took a shot at her on international live television and I have felt bad about it ever since. And I called her right away and apologized, and she was very gracious and said, oh, I didn't even notice. Um, but I know how I feel when I say something that is with a, with a sharp tongue against someone else, so that bothers me. The other thing I did in the book was to show that I had this great experience in Washington, D.C., and I don't think I'm alone in having good experiences. And my experiences weren't only good because I knew Republicans. I had a lot of friends from both sides of the aisle. Donna Brazil was the campaign manager for Al Gore. She's one of my best friends, and we get along great. So I tell stories about how I met President Obama when he was senator from uh, Illinois in February of 2005. I was the new deputy press secretary, and we ended up at a dinner together across the table from each other, and we laughed our butts off for hours. And three years later, I didn't expect him to remember me, but he's at the White House. Now I'm the press secretary. He's the candidate. And I went to introduce myself, and he says, ah! Dana Perino. That was my favorite night in all of Washington. So I tell that story because I want people to know that just because you might disagree with somebody on a policy position doesn't mean you can't enjoy their company and enjoy each other as Americans and human beings. But now we have not just the Republicans and Democrats in armed camps, but we have the Republicans in oh, yeah. armed camps against each other. Yeah. What do you think about this splintering of the Republican Party that's going on in real time in these debates um, and uh, for a party that has always valued loyalty so much. I yeah. mean, the Democrats always had, I, I think, a little bit more arguing going on publicly uh, than the Republicans did. Maybe they did yeah. it more in private. But what do you think about what you see today with all of, all of, all of the, uh, I mean, back and forth? I mean, we're, we're down to just a, three candidates three now, candidates. but it's been, it's, 
It's not been, it's been comfortable. Brutal. It's been brutal. <laughs> and I've covered it every single day um, because of, of the show and also because I'm interested. Um, I, I believe this from a broad brush standpoint, that parties evolve. Uh, and if they fail to evolve and adapt, they can splinter. And parties don't last forever. And we might be witnessing the destruction of the Republican Party, at least as I have always known the Republican Party. I'm 40, I'll be 44 in a, in a month. My grandfather was the county commissioner in Weston County, Newcastle, Wyoming. I mean, I've been a Republican all my life. Um, but am I, I'm not devastated that the Republican Party might disappear as, the, as I knew it, because I believe that conservative principles, just like progressive principles or liberal principles, they will exist whether the parties are intact. Um, I do think that there is quite a bit of fighting within the Democratic Party as well, but the Republicans won. It's so grossly entertaining. I, might, I think if, if that's the way to put it, that you can't tear your eyes away uh, from it. I think that we could be seeing the wholesale destruction of the Republican Party as I've always known it. That's not entirely a terrible thing. I think there are changes, especially with another person you're going to be talking to, you know, Alec Ross, with his book, The Industries of the Future. You know, Policies and politics has to keep up with the techno technological innovations of our time, uh, or else it's not just a few people that will feel left behind. It will be entire classes of people. And so we have a lot of work to do in, in dealing with our debt and our government, our tax system, our regulatory structure, the education system, immigration, trade, international pressures that we feel from threats from people who want to harm us. There's a lot more important to deal with than the latest of who said what on the campaign trail. But the who said what on the campaign trail is so entertaining that that's what people have focused on. So what's likely to happen with this election? Is there I going to know. be a contested convention? Will there be a third party candidate if they push Trump out? There's, it, it seems he's more or less hinted, if not come out directly, to say that he would run as a third party candidate. If he gets the nomination, there's a lot of talk behind the scenes that someone else might there could run. Be another third party. <laughs> another. <laughs> lots of names are surfaced. Yeah. Paul Ryan being one. Yeah. There's others. I don't think that's real. Mm -hmm. I don't think that rumors about Paul Ryan running for president are real at mm -hmm. all. Um, the likelihood of a contested convention is probably, I'd say, 60 percent likely at this point, just because the rules being what they are, that you have to get a majority mm -hmm. before the convention to be assured the nomination. And if yes. you don't, it goes to a vote. Yes. And everyone's getting a real education now of what that means when delegates are chosen in different ways by different states. They're bound or unbound. Um, we have a situation now in Louisiana where Donald Trump handily won the popular vote in Louisiana, but he lost the delegate count. Mm -hmm. And now he wants to sue Louisiana for that. But the rules were the rules. So. It's, it's true, the rules are the rules, but um, I often read that, that those that have been voting for Trump will feel thwart, they will. thwarted if, they will. if he has almost all the delegates. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it would be very hard. I think, that he, I think if he has almost all of the delegates and he goes to the convention, mm -hmm. even in that first or second round, I still mm -hmm. think that he could become the nominee. I don't think that um, there will be that many unbound delegates that decide to not vote for him, unless things continue um, he's doing very poorly with certain segments of Republican voters, very conservative voters and Republican women. And he could make up some of that in a general election by bringing Democrats over to vote for him. But if you're losing conservatives and women on the other side, you've got to make that up someplace else. And I don't know where he does that. 
If the Republican Party is splintering, breaking up, as you suggest it might mm -hmm. be, similar mm -hmm. to maybe what happened to the Democrats 50 years ago, mm -hmm. back in the mid-60s or so, um, how long will it take them I don't know. to put Humpty Dumpty <laughs> back together? And can they win uh, uh, national elections very well? Uh, in that state of disunity. I think it's very hard for Republicans, no matter what, to win nationally anyway. Mm -hmm. um, if you looked at, at, so Hillary Clinton in 2012, the, the night that Barack Obama won, she looked at that electoral map and said, that's my starting point. Okay, so Republicans have to try to figure out a way to change that map. Donald Trump could absolutely change the electoral mm -hmm. map. I don't believe that Ted Cruz could flip any states that Romney didn't win. Mm -hmm. I actually don't believe that. Right. He, he, I'm sure he would argue and tell me that I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but I really I don't see how that is possible. Mm -hmm. Now, with Donald Trump, could you see uh, Massachusetts being in play? Yeah, for him. Mm -hmm. But Hillary Clinton could put Arizona in play for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. Same is true for Utah, because Utah gave Trump some of his worst marks ever. If the Republican Party in Utah is not going to be excited and enthusiastic to come out and vote for Trump in Utah, but the Democrats, they might actually have a chance to win Utah. So then the map that we've known ever since about the year 2000 will look totally different. So nobody really knows what's going to happen. So will you be supporting the Republican nominee, whoever it is? Uh, I would love to be able to do that, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I have a different job now, too. Um, I am not one of these news analysts or pundits that feels like I need to advertise who I am for. I am not campaigning for anyone. If you ask me who I think should be president, I'll go to my, mm -hmm. my chapter three, George W. Bush. So, um, well, uh, you worked, he was your boss. Yeah. You worked with him in the White House, uh, obviously very loyal to him. Uh, mm -hmm. It comes through loud and clear in the book. Um, his brother was running in this past mm -hmm. election. And Donald Trump was very disparaging, to put it mildly, mm -hmm. completely. Um, mm -hmm. Even you know, spoke of mm -hmm. um, uh, lying us into the war. Spoke of knowing about nine eleven. Knowing about right. well, I don't. I, did he actually say that? I yes. know. He, I know he felt that he didn't keep us safe. Talked about. No, he hundreds. said. He said that. I mean, it's it's beyond yeah. uh, birtherism into trutherism at mm -hmm. this point. Uh -huh. uh, impeachment and so forth. So. I'm guessing it would be very hard for you to support someone like that. There are other reasons that it would be hard mm -hmm. as well. Um, for me, the um, making fun of a disabled reporter and then lying about it, that bothered me very much. Also, um, I assume that you're still on great terms with the Bush family. Mm -hmm. Jeb was running, and he has said that he finds uh, Donald Trump's views on foreign policy, quote-unquote, scary. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean, there, they, these well, that's are... Well, I mean, that's not, a, that's not a Jeb Bush-only phenomenon. If you no, look at the no. Quinnipiac poll, right. the most recent one, where they did the word cloud, word association with Trump yes. or Hillary, mm -hmm. scary was the most, the, mm -hmm. the most uh, often repeated mm -hmm. word in that poll. That's not a Jeb mm -hmm. Bush position. That was a majority of the people from the Quinnipiac poll. So if there's a splintering and if there's a third-party run... Um, none of these things are outrageous to talk about. Um, how will the party or how will the conservatives, let's say, 
develop a new party? What I don't know. How, what groups would be included? What would be left out? I don't know. Where would they draw the newest? Okay. <laughs> I, you're asking me things that we don't. We just don't know. There's yes. a, there are so many hypotheticals, and we could play this game of trying to figure it out. But it's impossible to mm -hmm. say. You don't know what sort of leaders would emerge. Mm -hmm. What sort of ideas will emerge? It's, um, I, I just think at this point, uh, anybody who says they know what's going to happen is wrong. I also think that a third party run is highly unlikely. You do. It's almost impossible to get on the ballots at this point. I see. Just practically, mm -hmm. that doesn't seem like it would work. Besides, uh, a third-party run on a Republican-leaning side would guarantee Hillary Clinton the win anyway. Yes. So I don't know... What the point would be. Right. Okay. Um, maybe we can end on a bit more of a, an uplifting note. Um, you mentioned in the book there was... Uh, uh, one of the hotels you were in, someone left a card on your pillow with a Zen quote. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> right. It was, um, it was after I left the White House, and I, I think a lot of people believe that my transition from press secretary into the PR world into um, co-host of one of the most popular shows on cable news, that it looks very smooth from the outside, but internally it was really, I think it was a lot for me to handle. I had worked in government for so long, um, I'd worked in the private sector before as well. My business, when I left the White House, was going great, but I was overwhelmed. And also I was exhausted from that uh, experience. And even though I was White House press secretary, I'm a pretty non-confrontational person. So um, fighting on cable news was something new to me. Um, and especially because when I was a press secretary, it did not phase me to talk about George W. Bush and his positions. Um, but when I had to give my own opinions, it was different. And there was this little uh, pillow card, and I can't remember which hotel it was, but it said something like, um, uh, to, be, <laughs> to be tranquil. Mm -hmm. um, what's the first word? Say little, but when you speak. Um, speak gently from the heart. Mm -hmm. uh, abstain from vanity. Be truthful, that is the way. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I thought that captured what I needed to be doing in my life uh, after I left the White House. And so I took that card and I've had it with me ever since, almost 10 years. So it helped, helped get you through. Yeah, I read it every morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.